It's 11,000 years ago in the fields of what is now southeastern Turkey. It's springtime. Wildflowers are everywhere, the hills are green, and the scent of pollen attests to the new life that's making its appearance in the annual dance of the seasons. A group of women are walking through a field on the way from their camp while they are foraging for tubers. They are family and good friends, spending every day together gathering food and preparing it for their families. This is a field they know well. They've come back here for several years now as the fields are rich with game and there are many tubers to gather at nearby streams and ponds. They see that the field is once again full of the wild emmer wheat. They will come back here again in the summer this year and gather the wheat kernels they will grind and make into the flatbread that their families love so much. Because the wheat is wild, the grain in the heads ripens at different times. Over the next few millennia, wheat will become domesticated and will be selected for heads that all ripen at the same time. Now, however, the grain still ripens at different times, so that when the women come to gather it, some has already fallen off the heads to reseed the fields for the next year, and some will fall off as the stems get jostled in the harvesting process. As the women walk through the field, one utters the sentence that will change humanity. This will be a good field of wheat for us again when the days are long and the sun is hot. But there are so many thistles here. If we pull them from the field, there may be even more grain this year. They paused to pull the thistles and other weeds from the field before they continued their hunt for tubers that morning. That summer, they found that the wheat was in fact more abundant, and there were fewer thistles to stick them as they harvested. They returned the next year and weeded the same field, to find an even better harvest that year as well. After a few years, they had a field they could return to that was something close to what we would recognize as a wheat field. When their daughters grew up, they would return to this same field year after year. Their daughters would easily harvest two to three times as much wheat from this field as they could when they were gathering the sparse wheat stalks that grew in the field before they began weeding it. This small group of women who first began to weed this field never knew that they began one of humanity's greatest revolutions and changed the course of human history. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 3. The Agricultural Explosion The development of agriculture circa 10,000 years ago is generally referred to as the Neolithic or Agricultural Revolution. I've entitled today's podcast The Agricultural Explosion because of the impact that agriculture had on humankind. It completely changed life in almost every way for future generations and set us on a course that would lead us to the Industrial Revolution almost 10,000 years later. We set our fictional story in the Fertile Crescent, but I could have easily set it in India's Indus Valley, at least two regions of China, Mexico or South America, or a handful of other locations. One estimate has agriculture developing independently in at least 11 different areas of the world, mostly around the same time as it did in the Fertile Crescent, though there seems to be some disagreement on exactly how many times agriculture developed independently. 
In most of these areas, the first beginnings of agriculture can be seen somewhere around 10,000 years ago, which is shortly after the end of our last ice age when the world was beginning to warm sufficiently to be able to support agriculture. It's interesting that agriculture started at so many places at just the time that warming temperatures would have made agriculture feasible. The obvious conclusion to draw from this is that mankind was more than ready for the development of agriculture and developed it as soon as they could, wherever they could. We saw in our last episode that around 40,000 years ago, humans went through the Great Leap Forward, in which human creativity jumped forward by leaps and bounds. As part of the Great Leap Forward, humans had developed mattocks and adzes to dig with and clear the ground. There was a real cost for hunter-gatherers who had to carry these large, heavy tools along with their other possessions with them as they traveled from one camp to another. For these tribes to make enough of them that they show up in the archaeological record means that they were common implements in the late Paleolithic. Therefore, as long ago as 40,000 years, digging and altering their environment in order to forage and gather for food was a major part of the Homo sapien experience. When the world began warming and the land became more lush and fruitful by 10,000 years ago, people had the knowledge of how to alter and cultivate their environment and had the tools to do so. Their minds were so much more creative than the men and women who had lived in Helen Keller's No World for so many millennia before the Great Leap Forward. Language not only gave us the ability to think conceptually about how to cultivate crops, but critically, the ability to talk about it and to brainstorm with others about growing plants for food. Carbon-14 dating from across Europe shows that after agriculture became firmly established in the Fertile Crescent, it spread outward from the Levant at the rate of approximately a kilometer per year. Archaeologists debated for many years whether the spread was from one population of hunter-gatherers to another, or if the spread of farming was due to migration of existing hunter-gatherer populations. Perhaps this debate is close to being resolved. Recent genetic analysis shows the spread was due to farmers migrating and establishing new farming villages, not by spreading the knowledge of farming techniques to neighboring hunter-gatherer tribes. This seems to fit with our hypothesis that human groups were wary of outsiders and that ideas did not travel quickly between different groups of people at this time. Since the agrarian lifestyle swept the world in the 10 millennia or so after its first adoption, and since farming populations never seemed to revert to a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, I've always assumed that there are advantages to farming that outweighed the advantages of hunter-gatherer lifestyles. Less food insecurity, being able to build a home and having one home to raise your family, the greater opportunity for the accumulation of personal wealth, a much higher fertility rate, and greater protection from predators are among the advantages early agrarians would have enjoyed. Yet there are those who argue strongly that the hunter-gatherer lifestyle is far superior to the agrarian lifestyle. Jared Diamond makes this argument in his book The Third Chimpanzee. One thing early farmers gave up was the egalitarian lifestyle of their hunter-gatherer forebears. Once people began to farm, they settled into permanent villages. When this happened, society began to stratify. 
villages picked leaders to rule over them. All the evidence we have from the archaeological sites of early farming towns show that they were ruled by a strong man. Many argue, with good justification, that the settled agrarian life came at the cost of independence and social standing for women. Though I've argued that women could certainly not have claimed equality in many hunter-gatherer societies, they could in many, and I suspect that there was more egalitarianism between the sexes 10,000 years ago. Certainly this was not the case in early agrarian societies. Once people settled into villages, there became a strong sexual distinction with women losing much of the power and independence they seem to have had in most hunter-gatherer cultures. Even among those who weren't active rulers of the village, society soon stratified into haves and have-nots. It seems clear that fairly soon some members of society accumulated significant wealth and others didn't. Beyond this, adopting an agrarian lifestyle meant eating the same foods over and over again. Diets of hunter-gatherers are quite varied. They eat a wide variety of tubers, plants, fruits, and wild game. This is an incredibly nutritious diet compared to the subsistence farmer. There's archaeological evidence that indicates that farmers living during this era were two or three inches shorter than their hunter-gatherer contemporaries. Farming communities, in which people lived in close proximity with each other, seemed to develop significantly more and more serious illnesses than hunter-gatherers. Though they had a much higher birth rate, they also had a higher infant mortality rate. Was the hunter-gatherer lifestyle superior to a sedentary lifestyle? Perhaps. Jared Diamond calls farming the worst mistake in the history of the human race. People will continue to debate this, but mistake or advance, our point is not to debate the merits of it. Given that it is now part of human history, our job is to look at how it changed our path through history. At first, most farming was subsistence farming. It took just about everything that farmers grew to feed their family. As farming methods improved, however, there was a small surplus that could often be taken from the land. The surplus went to the rulers of the farming community. This allowed them to focus their energies on ruling their communities rather than on the daily grind to produce their own food and shelter, as had been the case since the dawn of humans. Slowly, over time, a virtuous cycle though some argue there's little virtuous about it, was built up that went something like this. Farming led to increased fertility rates that led to more farmers that led our bright creative minds to develop better cultivation and irrigation techniques that led to more surplus per farmer that led to higher population growth that led to more productivity and so on. Larger settlements and more surplus food eventually led to a professional class of religious leaders. Once people settled, their deities moved from the gods and spirits that had lived in the natural world to the firmament or underworld or sometimes in a temple that was built by people. There was also a movement from story to ceremony as populations settled and built permanent temples for their gods. For hunter-gatherers, stories, including stories about their gods, would have come largely around the campfire at night. One study showed that during the day, the vast amount of oral communication between hunter-gatherers was about practical day-to-day matters. 
After dark, however, the majority of communication was in the form of stories. Almost all the land these agrarian settlers would have migrated into would have already been populated by hunter-gatherers. As we've established, these hunter-gatherer populations would have been territorial and leery of outsiders. So how would they feel about populations coming in from the outside, taking over most of their fertile lands, and setting up a permanent home? It's not, and never has been, human nature to allow foreign groups to come in and take over one's best property. I know more about North American Plains tribes than I do about old-world hunter-gatherer populations. It was more common among these tribes to conduct raids than to declare outright war. It's likely that European hunter-gatherer populations engaged in such raids at the time that agrarian societies were expanding and establishing settlements in their territories. This was still several centuries before writing was developed, so we'll never know for sure what kind of conflicts accompanied the spread of agrarian peoples throughout Europe. What we do know is that after agriculture established itself in the Fertile Crescent, farmers began to migrate out of the Levant and begin to spread throughout Europe. By 9,000 years ago, farmers were established in western Greece. By 7,000 years ago, they had spread throughout most of southern and central Europe. According to some researchers, they had reached Britain by 6,100 years ago and Sweden by 5,000 years ago though the last of these two dates aren't certain. This is a very rapid rate of dispersion by human migration standards. If we were right that overpopulation was the driver for hunter-gatherer expansion, it seems to have been even more of a driver for our new agrarians. Agriculture is the driver that began the population explosion that has continued until today. It's estimated that the world population was about 10 million people 11,000 years ago. Over the next 9,000 years, it would grow to 250 million people. That's a 25-fold increase in just 9,000 years. That's a stunning increase. What was it like for these first farmers as they moved into a new region and established a village and agricultural community? Farming required burning a field, cultivating it, and planting it by hand. Crop rotation wouldn't be discovered until the 16th century, so farmers could plant a field for only three to five years before they would have to burn another field and plant there. They would then have to let their first field go fallow for five years or more before they could plant there again. If there is not an open plain, the farmers would have to cut down all the trees before the land could be cleared for cultivation. It's worth noting as an aside that Europe was much more wooded at the time. One ancient document reported that a traveler could go from Paris to Munich without ever seeing the sun. In other words, there were so many trees you would be in the shade wherever you went. Is there any evidence that existing hunter-gatherer populations were raiding or attacking farming villages and towns? The town of Jericho in the Jordan Valley, yes, Joshua's Jericho, is one of the first towns in the world to have known to have been established. Soon after it was established, about 10,000 years ago, the residents built a massive wall around the city, about 5 to 6 feet thick and 12 to 17 feet high. The townsfolk then dug a ditch 27 feet wide by 9 feet deep through solid bedrock. 
and built a lookout tower on the wall. These were townsfolk that were very determined to deter raiders and invaders. Who were they so set on keeping out of their town? We see ancient cities as building walls to protect themselves from other cities who would go to war against each other. This is partially because this is exactly what happened in ancient and medieval historical times. I'm sure that it's also partially because of the fiction that we've been told that it could not have been those gentle, peaceful hunter-gatherers that would raid settled villages and towns. Yet at the time Jericho was established, there were a few other towns to invade them. Local established hunter-gatherer populations seemed the most likely invaders to me. To settle this issue of how peaceful hunter-gatherers were, it's probably worth looking at what we know about the homicide rate in various cultures. Richard Rangham, who we met in our last episode, has studied this issue and found that the median rate of intergroup violence in hunter-gatherer societies to be 164 per 100,000 people. In small-scale farming societies, it's 595 per 100,000 people. And in advanced societies, it's 5.2 per 100,000. So although hunter-gatherer groups were much less violent than agrarian societies, they were still far more violent than modern societies. Walled towns seem to have been built in Europe just about as soon as people began to build towns there. The oldest known walled town in Europe was Solnitsada, which is in present-day Bulgaria. This was built six or 7,000 years ago, which is not long after farmers started arriving in Europe. Most of the first walls were probably made of wood or other materials that would not have left a permanent record. The early adoption of walled towns argues for protection against hunter-gatherer raids. This, of course, does not tell us how they protected their fields from raiding parties. Was it necessary to post watchmen like shepherds to watch over their fields? Agriculture was a complete game-changer for humans. Not only did it spur massive increases in population and allow people to live in settled villages for the first time, it was the impetus for massive cultural changes that would occur with the advent of settled villages. But to understand how and why these changes would happen, it's necessary to take a little aside. So my apologies for getting a little wonky for a moment, but to understand the mechanisms of history, a little background of how to view history is necessary. I promise not to get too technical or to stay too long on this stuff, but it's necessary to understand how history works. And if we're going to understand where we're going, we need to understand how history works. First, think of a chaotic system. Any system in which chaos is the order of the day. Think of a billiard player breaking a rack of pool balls and the balls following seemingly random paths, waves breaking on a beach, water droplets moving randomly in a cloud, or even water dripping from a faucet. All of these, and almost any chaotic system you can think of, have one thing in common. The components of any such seemingly random set of events are subtly guided by certain attractors. Attractors are a phenomenon that plays some kind of organizing role with these kinds of random events. Let's take the early solar system. Astronomers think that before the sun was formed, there was just a large mass of dust gas swirling chaotically. 
At first, discrepancies in the densities of pockets of this dust and gas cause minute differences in gravitational attraction in different parts of the gas cloud. This slightly increased gravitational attraction attracted more dust and gas, ever so slightly at first, but then more and more as local masses increased and gravitational fields began to intensify. Eventually, over many eons, this caused the majority of dust and gas in the center of this swirling mass to coalesce into our sun, and some dust and gas further out condensed into the planets. In this example, it was gravity that acted as the attractor, or the force that organized the sun and planets. Almost all chaotic systems will have some kind of attractor that will play the organizing role that gravity did in our solar system example. Some, like weather, have attractors that will organize chaotic airflows over the ocean into organized, swirling, rotating storms that will move on to land, increase their rain, and move on, leaving random, chaotic airflows that will eventually be drawn again by attractors to organize into storms, and so on, etc., etc. There's an amazing phenomenon that happens when chaotic events arrange themselves into something organized. This is called emergence. The process of a hurricane arising from the once random airflows over the Atlantic Ocean is emergence. Think of voices singing. If you hear one voice singing, you hear the voice. If you hear two or even three voices singing, row, row, row your boat in around, you still hear the individual voices. If you hear a choir singing, though, you no longer hear a voice. What you hear is the harmony. The harmonic blending of the voices is an example of the phenomenon of emergence. It's made up of individual singing voices, but the sound you hear is qualitatively different than the sound of the voices. There are endless examples of emergence in the universe and the natural world. It's incredibly fascinating, but what will fascinate us in this podcast will be the instances of emergence we will be seeing in the human communities as we trace our path to here. This barely touches the tip of the iceberg, but it's enough wonkiness for now. We will have to dip our toes in again later just to learn a bit about game theory, but we can save that for later. But with this, we can better explore the dynamics of what life might have been like for the first towns. Let's look more deeply at Jericho, one of the world's first towns. By the time we arrive at Jericho 10,000 years ago, the inhabitants had built a town of 430,000 square feet. It's estimated that there were two to 3,000 people living there at the time. Their lives would have been significantly different than their hunter-gatherer forebears. They lived in permanent houses and ate food from stores that had been cached for an entire year after the previous year's harvest. During the spring and summer months, they would work in their fields and grow their crops. Not to eat tonight, but perhaps a year from now. All of this is a very significant change from the hunter-gatherer lifestyle that their ancestors would have led a thousand years before them. But coming together and living with so many people in a permanent settlement led to more revolutionary changes, changes that would affect the course of human history. The people living in Jericho 10,000 years ago would have been drawn to spiritual and religious pursuits the same as hunter-gatherer bands always had. Yet this would have begun to play out differently for our townsfolk in Jericho. In hunter-gatherer bands, medicine men and shamans 
would have always told stories and led dances, etc., around the campfire at night. In Jericho, they would have had a dedicated place to hold their ceremonies. There is some thought that the tower that was built on the town's wall was used for religious ceremonies. If so, perhaps this was the first time a permanent structure was used as the location for religious rituals. The tower that the town's religious leader would have stood on to perform his religious ceremonies would ultimately morph in another 7,000 years to Solomon's temple just 15 miles away in Jerusalem, which would be the Jewish god Yahweh's literal home on earth. Another advancement believed to have happened in Jericho at this time is the development of irrigation. An irrigation canal dug 10,000 years ago would leave no trace today, so there's no physical evidence that irrigation was developed in Jericho at the time. But anthropologists don't think that farmers could have grown enough crops to feed over 2,000 people without irrigation. This would have taken probably thousands of man-hours to dig the irrigation ditches to bring the water to the fields. It would have also taken more advanced engineering to figure out how to get the water from the ditches to the fields in order to water the crops. It's safe to say that these were probably some of the largest public works projects taken on by mankind at that point. It would have taken the organization of a large portion of the population in order to build the wall tower and to engineer and dig the irrigation ditches. Though we'll never know for sure, it's a pretty good bet that society had already stratified by that time, and that by this time Jericho already had at least a ruling class and a working class. There's also a very good chance that they had a slave class as well. The need for safety from their enemies, and perhaps from flooding, and the need for water to irrigate their crops were attractors that drove the residents of Jericho to innovate, to build buildings, town walls, a large moat around the town, a watchtower, and an irrigation system. The notable factor of emergence is that, when it occurs, what is created is significantly different from the component factors that went into creating the emergence. People began farming, presumably, in order to avoid the uncertainties that came from foraging for food daily and to provide themselves with an assured store of food during the less productive winter months. What happened that nobody had seen coming was a birth rate that would explode the world's population from perhaps 10 million to an estimated 250 million people within the next 9,000 years, and a complete revolution in human culture. Irrigation would water the crops that Jericho farmers wanted irrigated, but what they never had in mind when they first created their irrigation system was that the ability to irrigate crops would lead to the ability for farmers to spread throughout the Levant, North Africa, and Europe, spreading their progeny and their genes farther and wider than any other single population. Similarly, the ability to live permanently within a settled town would completely revolutionize the culture of these previously nomadic people. This is, of course, all prehistoric before the advent of writing. So we can't know for sure what really happened in Jericho 10,000 years ago. But one thing that we can at least be reasonably sure of, is that the hunter-gatherer society that learned to farm and that settled there began to stratify over the ensuing generations as they began to grow in numbers and developed the need for walls and irrigation. 
If Jericho was like other fortified towns in historical times then, it had a ruler. He may not have been elected, but perhaps came to power by means of his power base and enforced his power over any who might challenge him. And yes, it was almost undoubtedly a he, with very few notable exceptions, some of which we will visit along our way. Pretty much all the rulers we will meet were men until our modern era. We've now entered the agricultural era, though we're still in the Stone Age. In fact, archaeologists call this the Neolithic. Neo meaning new and lithic meaning stone. The Neolithic started about 12,000 years ago and will continue until we reach the Bronze Age in our next episode. Archaeologists tell us that the Neolithic was characterized by more sophisticated and polished stone technology. Nevertheless, our new town dwellers in Jericho and other towns that have begun to spring up in the Fertile Crescent are able to make their homes, their city walls, dig irrigation canals, cultivate the ground, plant and harvest their grain, and all the myriad other things that are necessary in their new town with their wood and stone tools. Our new townsfolk will now grow their own food, mostly grains and cereals, though they will have to continue to hunt for meat. We will begin our next episode about 5,500 years ago, in the interim, between where we left our new town of Jericho 10,000 years ago and where we will pick up, there will be an incredible growth in the number of settled agricultural communities in the Levant. Animal husbandry will become established, and these settled populations will create new technologies and tools. As noted earlier, humans developed agriculture independently elsewhere in the world several times, mostly around this time. Each one of these peoples who developed agriculture was a fascinating and unique culture that deserves to be studied and appreciated. This brings us to an important point. This podcast is not an attempt at, quote, big history, in which we try to look at a little of all history in order to gain a grand overview of human history. We are simply following the arrow of history that will eventually lead us to the Industrial Revolution. We will then trace it from there to find out how we got to here, and we'll use that to see if we can use our knowledge of this arrow of history to understand why we have allowed the climate crisis to fester and to see if we can determine where we are going next. There's a vast amount of human history that we will not touch on in this podcast, and it's all worth studying. Archaeologists, academics, and others have argued for years whether the adoption of an agrarian lifestyle was good or bad. It has provided all the blessings of culture that we know today, as well as a much greater birth rate, which has allowed us to populate the world into the great nations we know today. On the other hand, it seems that the inequality that exists today between people can be traced to our ancestors' decision to give up hunting and gathering and become farmers. There's also the dietary benefits of being hunters and gatherers. It seems as though a small industry has grown up around promoting a pre-farming paleo diet. This isn't our concern. We will encounter humans doing many wonderful things in this podcast and many more doing terrible things. Our job is not to judge them. When we judge people, we become emotionally invested in our point of view. 
Once we do this, we lose the ability to evaluate events neutrally. When this happens, we become like the Rousseauians who have decided what they want human nature to be. Then we become attached to an interpretation of history that proves our thesis. Our job is simply to follow the arrow of history and understand that these were just people in the process of becoming more fully human. They were on the continuum between white Adam and mitochondrial Eve and the point at which humanity becomes fully human. So join us with our next installment, The Beginning of History, as we continue our journey watching humanity climb this ladder, episode by episode. This week's read is Chaos by James Glick. I was just barely able to cover the vast area you might want to call chaos, game theory, and systems theory. This book is a good introduction to this field, and I hope it'll inspire you to further investigation. See you next week. <laughs>